Thank you, Jeff and Sam, for leading us beautifully. Good morning, church. Let's wake up just a little bit more. Good morning, church. Thank you for the energy. That is greatly appreciated. Uh, Last week, Jordan kicked off our series called A Son is Given uh, by talking about Habakkuk. If you weren't here uh, this past Sunday, please listen to the sermon. It's available on Spotify and on our website, Um, but Reader's Digest version. uh, He talked about in Habakkuk how we experience evil around us um, and what Jesus' arrival did to meet us in the midst of our mourning and what we in the here and now are to do about the mourning, grief, and sadness that we experience. Uh, Which, by the way, um, just a give another advertisement for this devotional, Um, and he's not going to share it, but um, as Jordan Chapel has written this very beautifully, I might add, uh, this is definitely a helpful devotional this Advent season um, that doesn't just talk about like frivolous, like theological concepts, but gets into the dirt and the weeds of our human experience. Um, And so last week he set up very beautifully through Habakkuk about the injustices, the evils that are around us, and that there's something within each and every one of us as humans, but ultimately as followers of Jesus, that when we experience evil and and all sorts of injustice, that there's something within us that mourns and grieves the things that are around us, which is why we can't just sit idly by and be so numb when there's war and famine, when there's homelessness, all these things that are happening in our world, it affects us deep inside of our bones. But this morning as we transition to the book of Micah, uh, we're transitioning from the what's of injustice to the who's of injustice. Like we're getting beyond just the concepts and beyond our feelings, but we're getting to the image bearers who are experiencing these injustices, or what we are calling this morning the marginalized. And before we dive into the book of Micah, which if you have access to a Bible, let's get to Micah chapter 1. Yay, some pages are flipping. Some of you are getting your phones out. That's great. Just kids don't get on Snapchat, whatever. But before we get into Micah chapter 1, I want to do two things quickly. Uh, Let's go through some definitions Uh, So first, because we're going to talk about justice, I think it'd be important for us this morning to have a common understanding of what we mean by justice, because unfortunately, that word has become extremely politicized, especially over the past few years, past few decades, and I want us to come to an understanding not of what a political party says about justice, but we're going to approach the Bible and what the Bible says about justice, Because this word of God that contains what justice means, this matters a whole lot more than what our politicians say. So, the Hebrew word for justice is this word sadaka, which throughout the Old Testament is translated to mean righteousness. So, when you read in the Old Testament, and we're going to get to a word where it says justice, we can interpret justice to also mean righteousness or right living. And if you aren't as into Hebrew as maybe I am, which is fine, no judgment if you don't like Hebrew, let me give you a definition behind you. Well, behind me. I guess it's behind you too. There's a screen back there too for those of you that were wondering. But justice is advocating for, through word and deed, the ethics of God's kingdom to all who bear 
his image. I'll read it again for emphasis because that's what good public speakers do. Justice is advocating for, through word and deed, the ethics of God's kingdom to all who bear his image. Next definition would be marginalized. Jordan already has set the scene for us that we're going to talk about those who are marginalized. And if you don't know, for an example, here's the wonderful devotional. There's the content, the stuff that has our attention and our gaze. But we have the margins of the paper, which are the things that are pushed off to the side that we don't focus on. When you're reading this, you're not like, oh, man, those margins are just beautiful. Oh, that's lovely. Like, the marginalized are those who have been pushed aside, or as Webster said, marginalized means to relegate to an unimportant or powerless position within a society or group. So that is what we are talking about this morning and beyond when we talk about those who are marginalized, those who have been relegated to an unimportant or powerless position within a society or group, which for our context can incorporate a lot. Second, because I also know the last time I preached, we talked about attention span and how some of you are already checked out, and that's, I guess, fine. God can still meet you where you're at. But I want to give away the main point. Like, right off the bat, you don't have to wait till the end. I can give it now, and then you can move on with whatever, or you can listen to what the Lord might have to say to you. But Jesus does not stand with what the world applauds. Power, prestige, fame. He's with the outcast, the lowly, the least of these, or as we define the marginalized. That Jesus is in the midst of those that we have as a society cast aside, deemed as less than. That Jesus is with them. Why? Because that is exactly how he came into our world. And that was his mission from the very beginning, was to minister to those on the margins. So before we get into our text, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know that, uh, that this topic um, carries some cultural baggage. And I even know that with some of the things that you have impressed on my heart, God, that there's going to be some things that are shared that might be uncomfortable, might step on our toes. Um, and God, I just pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, uh, would speak a gentle and gracious word that you would open our eyes and our hearts to exactly what it is um, that you accomplish through your son to reach the marginalized and that we likewise, as Jesus, you set an example for us that we are also called to do the same. Holy Spirit, this space is yours. Um, we just pray that you would get all the honor and glory. Remove me from the picture, and would you, Jesus Christ, be the one that is exalted. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So, as much as I would love to just sit and talk about the entire context of the book of Micah, uh, Bible Project has already done that way better than I ever could. So you can go to YouTube, type in Micah, wonderful exposition of the book. So if that's what you were expecting, I'm so sorry. You can go home, listen to it on your own time, and it's fantastic. 
but for this morning, in regards to the topic of justice for the marginalized, we're going to walk through three movements of how God addresses justice for the marginalized. We're going to start with Micah. The middle of our little sandwich is Jesus, and then we'll end by talking about the church. And I wish that I could just pause and do a whole long lecture about the Bible and justice. So for those of you that are like, we're finally talking about justice. Let's get after it, Jordan. If that's you, like maybe someday, just keep praying. We might eventually do a series on justice or a Sunday morning on justice, whatever. But for this morning, we're just going to look at Micah, Jesus, and the church. So you have your Bibles open to Micah chapter 1. And in verse 1, we see the context for this book. The word of the Lord that came to Micah the Morishite, what he saw regarding Samaria and Jerusalem in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So this is the context for which Micah is writing this. All we know here is that Micah is from this place called Morasheth, which, by the way, is a rural town. So instantly, Micah is already writing this from a community that is on the margins. He's not writing this from the epicenter of culture. He is writing it from Morasheth. And he is a prophet who is a contemporary of Isaiah and was prophesying during the reign of those kings. If you're a note taker, you can read more context from those kings in the book of 2 Kings from chapters 15 to 20. You'll get the entirety of the summary of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Which, by the way, isn't it beautiful that like sometimes the Bible talks about the Bible within the Bible and it helps you more broadly understand the culture in which we're reading? Side point, love the Bible. And those names probably don't ring a bell, and that's okay. But we can know through context that most likely Micah is calling out the injustices under the guy named Ahaz. And as you read in 2 Kings, you'll read that this guy was an absolute trip. Did things like sacrifice his first son to some idols. You know, like just things that good leaders do. Amongst a whole lot of other injustices that Ahaz initiated, and we don't have a whole lot of time for that. But what we do know is in Micah chapter 1, verses 2 to 7, we see a little bit more of God's justice and God's desire to make things right come out. So Micah chapter 1, let's pick up again in verse 2. Listen, all you peoples, pay attention, earth and everyone in it. The Lord God will be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is leaving his, his place and coming down to trample the heights of the earth. The mountains will melt beneath him and the valleys will split apart like wax near a fire, like water cascading down a mountainside. All this will happen because of Jacob's rebellion and the sins of the house of Israel. What is the rebellion of Jacob? Isn't it Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Isn't it Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the countryside, a planting area for a vineyard. I will roll her stones into the valley and expose her foundations. All her carved idols will be smashed to pieces. All her wages will be burned in the fire. And I will destroy all her idols. Since she collected the wages of a prostitute, they will be used again for a prostitute. Good morning. That's rough. But if God would choose to leave his holy temple, 
which for those of you that were curious, that that imagery is used as an allusion back to the book of Exodus when God descended from his throne to meet Moses on the mountain. But this time it's not as pretty of an encounter. And if the mountains and the valleys melt and split under his mighty feet, and if he has plans to utterly destroy Samaria and Jerusalem, they must have done something to righteously upset God. Because it's on that same mountain that God ascended upon, upon which he encountered Moses in the book of Exodus and he revealed his character by saying that he is gracious, compassionate, and we believe that our God is slow to anger. Meaning God eventually does get angry. God is a God of justice. He hates injustice, but he's slow to anger. So in this context, God is leaving his holy temple and coming down on the mountains to confront injustice. Now, if God is at this point, we have to ask the question, what are the people in Micah's day doing to get God righteously angry? Well, let's turn to Micah chapter 2 and let's find out a little bit of, of why. Verse 1. Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light they accomplish it because the power is in their hands. They covet fields and seize them. They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. So brief summary. The wealth and the powerful are stripping people of fields and houses unjustly. These are people who have had lands and homes as inheritances from family past for generation and generation, and they are unfairly taking what is rightfully theirs and taking it for themselves. Which, for those of you that are studiers of the law of the Old Testament, Leviticus 25 and Numbers chapter 36 strictly forbid this. That those who have what is just a part of their family and they have that clinging to their hands and that's all they have, the powerful and the wealthy are stripping that away. And that doesn't seem right. And you might think that that's just a governmental leader type of a thing, but Micah doesn't leave the religious leaders out of it. Later in Micah chapter 3, uh, God through, through Micah, is speaking to the prophets who were preaching a message of peace to their listeners, but their sense of security was only guaranteed for a price. Meaning, the prophets of that time would receive an offering, and because of that offering, he would then preach a false message of peace. Because the context of Micah is that Samaria and Israel are battling it out. Eventually, Syria is going to come in and do what it does. But they're literally, the prophets are taking a prophet from people from the marginalized who have little, and they're saying, if you give me what you have, I will promise you peace. And that is not the role of the prophet. Even the prophets were corrupt. Even the prophets were reaching the marginalized and taking what they already had. And that was righteously upsetting God as it should. Both the leaders in the religious and the governmental sense were bending laws to favor themselves. And God saw it. 
he expressed his fury. And as we read in Micah chapter one, God's gonna do something about it. And then we skip forward to Micah chapter six, which if you have your Bibles, you can skip forward there. We're gonna camp out there in the book of Micah for the rest of our time. But in Micah chapter six, God gives Samaria and Jerusalem and ultimately for us a way out. Gives us a pathway for us to live righteously, to live justly. And in Micah chapter 6, God reminds them of his faithfulness to them. How God ultimately brought the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt, which they were on the margins, being unrighteously persecuted and enslaved, not because of anything they did, but because the nation of Egypt was so afraid of the Israelites from them becoming fruitful and possibly taking over that the Egyptians oppressed God's people. So even within the Israelites' bones are the feelings of marginalized, of being marginalized. And so God is reminding them of his faithfulness and how he redeemed them from slavery and how he raised up leaders who were obedient to the Lord and led well. And then we get to the solution in verse 8, which is probably the most recognized verse in the entire book of Micah. And it says this, Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, do you think this message would have been unique or something that, like, for the first time ever, Israel hears this and they're like, hmm, that seems pretty new. I don't think so. If you have someone read without any context of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Micah 6, they would read this and say, well, yeah, that's what God's been laying out through all of human history. So this isn't something brand new. This is a reminder of what they should have already been doing. And we'll get back to this verse by the end, so we can just hang tight there. So let's move on to our sweet baby Jesus. We've talked enough about Micah. Let's get to Jesus. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we'll get to the gospel in just a second. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 has a prophecy of the arrival of Jesus. And it says this, Bethlehem Ephrath, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. And catch this, Bethlehem, you are small among the clans of Judah. Meaning that Jesus arriving in Bethlehem meant that he would be born in the midst of the marginalized. In the midst of an unlikely community. He wasn't born in the likes of a New York City or Los Angeles. He was born in an obscure village that really was only known for being the birthplace of King David. That's it. There's nothing glorious or glamorous about Bethlehem. And that is the location of where our king was born. And the, the location of his birth wasn't the only time Jesus lived out Micah 6.8. So buckle your seatbelts, we're going to go on a bit of a biblical journey, which for some of you, yay. For others of you, you're like, oh man, either way, you're here. Let's do it. 
First thing, the place Jesus was primarily associated with throughout his life and ministry and even after his ministry was where? A place called Nazareth. For those of you that don't know, Nazareth was a place that was marginalized, that was not considered to be of high esteem or a place that you would uproot your family to go to that city because it has that awesome like school district and school program and your little athlete's going to thrive at that school. Like Nazareth was not the place you wanted to go. To put in modern terms, Nazareth was like the hood. And that is where Jesus most commonly was associated. In John chapter 1, verses 45 to 46, Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. And do you remember what Nathanael said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then Jesus has an encounter with Nathanael. John chapter 1, you can read that on your own time. Beautiful story. In Luke chapter 4, there's a man with a demonic spirit who entered the synagogue, who cried out with a loud voice, leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God came from Nazareth. The hood, the place of margin, And then as Jesus hung on the cross, Pilate made a sign and put it behind him. And it said what? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And then Peter twice after Pentecost called him Jesus of Nazareth. In Acts chapter 2, Peter was explaining that Jesus of Nazareth was the risen king and the Messiah. And then in Acts chapter 3, as he sees the lame beggar outside of the temple gate, he says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Jesus is forever identified with Nazareth, the hood, the marginalized, those who have been cast outside of popular culture. And can I ask a provocative question quickly? Where's our Nazareth? Where's the place that when you're talking with your friends or your coworkers that you say, like, can anything good come out of there? To be blunt, East Danville? Pick that small community that your community's arrival of. Where's your Nazareth? Second stop in the life of Jesus the ministry came to do and the sermons he preached were predominantly for the marginalized and rebuking those with power and prestige. If we go to a prophecy of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53, it says this, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that he should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. Catch this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. This is about Jesus. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Later in verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth 
like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. That even prophecy about Jesus was implying that he would be one who is in the midst of the margins. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount, which, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about it here in the near future as a church, his audience were people who were marginalized. You read the Beatitudes, and those that he's calling blessed are not those with prestige or power or money or wealth or influence. He's welcoming those on the margins to say, you are blessed, son or daughter. The thing that would have probably like made the hairs on their necks crawl and been like, oh, they're part of this? Yes! And then later in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about giving alms or giving to the poor. Ministering to those in the margins. Jesus in his first public sermon in Luke chapter 4, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Jesus, quoting Isaiah, was proclaiming that his mission from the very beginning was to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, This was ministry not in the midst of comfort, but to those who have been pushed aside by society as less than. And Jesus, quoting Isaiah, saying, this is why I came. I didn't come to make you comfortable. I came to go get them. And in Luke chapter 14, Jesus was at a banquet and told the one who invited him to not invite his friends, family, relatives, and rich neighbors because they might pay him back. Rather, As the text says, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Luke chapter 20, he's addressing the scribes here, and this is uh, not a fun one. Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets, They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgments. Ooh, that's tough. And then in Matthew chapter 25, one of the most popular passages of Jesus' teaching. He's preparing to go to the cross and he's teaching his disciples about this separation of the sheep from the goats and what differentiated the ones welcomed into his kingdom versus those who were cast into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verses 37 to 40 of Matthew 25. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did 
for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine you did for me. Those on the margins. Those that we would consider the least of these. When you do it for them, when we do ministry with the marginalized, when we love those who the world has deemed unlovable, we are doing so as if for Jesus. And beyond his teachings and his actions, if we consider the crowds of people that were either drawn to him or the crowds he found himself in the midst of, if we consider his disciples, his disciples consisted of a tax collector, fishermen, and zealots. People in the religious world would have considered marginalized. Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 to 11, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus was regularly dining with and having conversation with those in the margins. Jesus radically included women in his ministry. In John chapter 4, Jesus has a beautiful conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well who had a rap sheet. A woman who went to the well at the wrong time to avoid the people that she was living in the midst of because she was holding shame and that Jesus chose to meet her and did not cast judgment or blame because of her past but was there to redeem her future. And then as Jesus had Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, behind his cross, the man on his left and his right were also outcasts. And in Jesus' dying breath, one of the criminals comes to repent and asks that Jesus would remember him. And Jesus doesn't say, well, dude, you did all sorts of stuff. He says, today, without going to Sunday school class or confirming a right view of the atonement or giving monthly to the church or whatever, Jesus looks at this criminal and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't just preach justice for the marginalized and kept them at arm's length. John 1 says the word became flesh and he tabernacled. God in flesh came to be in our midst. And that Jesus, God in flesh, came to live out justice, came to preach justice, was also the God who took on the most unjust punishment. The most innocent man to ever live died a criminal's death. That the very religious leaders who were the ones who were supposed to know who the Messiah was were the ones that were about to hang him on a cross, and they did. He bore the most egregious injustice. And the punishment that he took was to redeem all injustice, transgression, and sin. As 2 Corinthians says, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness or justice of God. And Jesus' bloodshed on the cross shows no partiality, restrictions, or limitations based on our worldly metrics. The atonement of Jesus is a free gift for anyone, which includes the one that you overlook in the margins.
Now, if you still have your Bibles open to Micah chapter 6, verse 8, let's go back there as we consider how us as the church, not the one who holds the microphone and gives the message on a Sunday morning or the elders of a church or just the particular ones who are like the justice warriors, let's consider how we as the church can minister to those on the margin and beyond ministering to, and we'll get to that in just a second. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, let's read it again. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you, to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. And for the rest of our morning, we're going to actually take these three actions and let's turn them backwards. So we're going to talk about the last one first and then the middle one, and then we'll get to act justly. So first, to walk humbly with your God. Because if we want to be a church family that both individually and corporately follows in Jesus' footsteps in his life, then we must develop a daily walk of growing in our friendship and relationship with God. We cannot do godly justice apart from relationship with him. Not according to the definition of justice that we're talking about, meaning those that are advocating for, through word and deed, the ethics of God's kingdom. Not the kingdom of any country, not the kingdom of a political party or of a movement that we as God's people are here to enact justice through our words and through our actions, through his kingdom. And we cannot be bearers of his kingdom outside of him. He's the reason that we do this. Because God is a God of justice, that then propels us into justice. And the more we grow in our love and understanding of God, the more that we know his heart, the more that we know who he is and what he has come to do, that then, through that relationship, will then propel us to the margins. Because we'll understand God's heart is there. As you grow in your relationship with God, your heart will break for the things that break his. May we grow in our intimacy with our Father because our God is good and he is holy and he has opened his throne for you and I to know him. heard a pastor one time say a man or woman must first be great with God before he or she can become great for him that we must be the people who are great with God that's why it's important to pray read our Bibles spend time pausing to be still and know that he's God and that as we do that as we get to know his heart then we will be people of justice and if I'm allowed to share um, a story, um, for those that don't know, um, I volunteer once a week. This isn't like any kind of bragging, so please don't hear that. Uh, I serve once a week at the Hope Center, and I get to come alongside the middle school kids, and I get to help out Nathan and Lauren and Miss Barb and all the beautiful people that are doing beautiful work. And a confession that I went into that thinking that I was more like I had the answers and I was coming in as kind of savior to like fix these kids. Which, by the way, I'm, I'm sorry for that. 
And I had a moment where God wrecked me. We were going to a bonfire at the Powell's house, which, thanks, Powell's, for hosting us. It was lovely. And I had the opportunity to transport one young individual. And my heart began to melt as he just got to talk about all the things. And this kid can talk. Like, I barely talked. And if you know me, I'm a talker. So, like, if someone else is talking more than me, you know that person is very outgoing. And I'm pretty sure the Hope Center crew know who exactly that is. But then I began to hear this young boy talk about his intimate relationship with Jesus in the midst of the hard stuff that he's walked through. And this young boy has experienced more in his short life than many of us will ever experience. And my heart melted because I understood that the image of God is on him. And it's on anyone that I interacted with, whether in the Hope Center or outside, as I drive along the streets of Danville and see somebody on the side of the road. My heart was broken because I was treating image bearers as less than. And that's a shame. And I feel ashamed admitting it. But as I interacted with this young man, God was revealing more of his heart to me. And I'm not perfect. I still fall short, but by golly, I've been able to see others as image bearers, those that deserve respect and love. I'm so grateful for that young man for talking my absolute ear off. I'm so grateful for him. So next, we're to walk humbly with God. Next, we're to love faithfulness. This phrase in the Hebrew is difficult to translate. The word love here is ahaba, which is properly translated, but the difficulty comes with the word faithfulness. Because the word is so in-depth in meaning, it's hard for us to give one English word for the singular Hebrew word. The NIV and NLT says to love mercy. The ESV and NASB say to love kindness. And those translations in mind here, though those words are helpful, in the Hebrew, this word is chesed. And I don't have enough phlegm to properly use the K and H together. They're supposed to be like so much phlegm that like Isa would feel my spit. And for the Nardoni family and Isa, I'm not going to try. But the word is chesed. And the Bible Project has done a beautiful like study on this word. They actually did a whole podcast episode on it. So I'm going to borrow their definition because mine would not compare. Hesed is a type of affection that you have for someone, but it's more than affection. It's a loyal commitment to be generous to that person for the long run. For the long run. And what Micah is telling us that is good and what the Lord requires of us is to love chesed, to love being wildly generous to all people for the long haul, which means that loving and doing justice for the marginalized cannot be limited to just doing a singular short-term mission trip or one time serving a meal at that homeless shelter, which those things are good. 
But to love hesed means that we take up the example of Jesus and we commit our entire lives to being wildly generous to the marginalized for the long haul. Like not just like a brief lifestyle change to end out the year so we feel better about being generous, but this would become a 24-7, 365, that our eyes would be open to those who have been pushed to the margins and that we would love being generous to them for the long haul. Once again, not because you are enacting yourself as Savior, but you have encountered the Savior and you know that the love you've experienced from Him can be experienced for those that are pushed in the margins and that their lives can be radically changed, not because of what you bring to the table, but because of Jesus in you, who is the hope of glory. And last, to act justly. That is what is good and the Lord requires of us. And if you remember the passage I read in Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus said, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So church family, that person that you walked on the other side of the sidewalk to avoid, they bear the image of God. The person on the other side of the political aisle from you bears the image of God. The person of a different race, religion, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status bears the image of God. And we must resist the notion that our justice is solely rooted in changing laws or making a social media post or two, but that justice requires us to act justly to live a life of righteousness and holiness unto our Lord, to all who bear his image. To act justly regardless of what our country does or doesn't do in regards to laws. And I know it's hard. Because we as followers of Jesus are called to engage politics. 100%, but we do so with the ethics of the kingdom, not with the ethics of a particular party. But we are called to act justly according to this word and according to the example of Jesus. To advocate for, through word and deed, the ethics of God's kingdom to all who bear his image. And this is going to be uncomfortable, but we need to repent. I don't know all of your hearts. I just don't. But what I do know is there are probably areas of our lives that we have treated others unjustly. And that we need to repent. And we need to do better. because the gospel of Jesus demands it and the world around us yearns for it. For groups of people and individuals to act justly, to love Hesed, and to walk humbly with your God. The world around us is yearning for that and we can be the people who just do that. And what a better gift this Christmas for the Bride of Christ that showed Hesed to the marginalized in our country, our county, beyond. Full stop.
that we would be the ones. We're not waiting on anyone else to bring justice. We're not waiting on anyone else to be in the midst of the marginalized, to get to show them the love of Jesus, but that we would be the ones to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with God. So as we wrap up our time this morning, and as we consider the marginalized and how we can even begin to do our part in being a faithful witness of God's goodness, justice, and love, the work must begin be maintained by, and will always be an overflow of intimacy with God through the act of prayer. And so this morning, we are going to end our time as Jeff and Sam come up and get ready to play some beautiful music for us. We're going to approach the throne together. Because even as Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 told us to pray for our enemies, prayer is actually one of the greatest foundations for us to grow in our love and intimacy for someone else. If you feel like you don't have a heart for the marginalized, start praying for them. Start praying for those that have been pushed to the margins of society because the people that we are stereotyping and typecasting are people who have stories people who have experiences, people who have hurt and grief and shame. And as we pray for people, we will grow in our love and our heart for them. And so with the few moments that we have left this morning and before Jeff sings our last song, I want us to take time to pray for the marginalized in our community. And you might already have faces and names you might already have parts of your community or Danville or Vermilion County, or whether that's based on race, religion, sexual identification, socioeconomic standing, uh, where someone lives, partisan allegiance. Maybe the marginalized for you would be the incarcerated, the orphan, the widow, the homeless, etc. But could we storm the throne room of God together as a church family and pray for the marginalized? Pray for those who have been cast aside by our culture and that we would see God move in the midst of the marginalized. Because the very people that our culture is pushing aside deserve to know and experience the love of our Father. So let's take these next few moments and pray.
God, forgive us for the times that we have we have cast aside those who bear your image. God, forgive us for the times that we have not loved as well as we should have. Because God, while we were still sinners, while we were rebels, while we were cast aside, that you sent your son Jesus to die on our behalf and that you have opened up for relationship to any and all. And at one point, as we were far away, God, forgive us for the times that we have not loved those who are far away from you. God, I pray this Christmas season and beyond that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit is doing. Jesus, thank you for the example you gave for the people you ministered to the people that you lived with, the people you identified with. God, may we take that same example to not just place ourselves in the midst of comfort in those who are like us, but that we would find ourselves in the midst of the margins to love and to serve and to get to know other image bearers, God. In this holiday season, it's easy, God, for us to get wrapped up in what gifts we're going to give to our kids and family and friends, and that's all good and fine, but God, may this holiday season, may the greatest gift that we could give is the hope of Jesus to those who have been pushed to the margins who have no hope or who have placed their hope in things that aren't in you. And God, I know it can get messy when we, when we go to the margins, but God, that exact mess is why you came. God, break our hearts for the things that break yours. Would you receive honor and glory as we seek you in the midst of the marginalized in our communities? God, we love you. We're so grateful that you are a just and a loving God, that you are compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in hesed for us. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen.